Hi, ActiveHistory.ca is happy to present a recording of Robert Rutherdale's talk, Hometown Horizons, Local Responses to Canada's Great War. It was part of the Fall 2014 History Matters Lecture Series. You can find recordings of other talks at ActiveHistory.ca. I'd like to begin this late October evening to thank those who helped to bring this uh, public lecture together, the the staff at the uh, North York Public Library, Andrew Lowe, Miriam Scribner, uh, and uh, all the folks at the uh, Active History and and History Matter Lecture Series. Uh, This series has grown in popularity and presence as a public historical tradition, and I'm honored to be part of it this evening. My thanks, too, to my family and colleagues at York University who are here and my sincere thank you to all of you who are here. You've come tonight to hear my stories of Canada's local wars of 1914 to 1918. I'd like to offer a closer look than most historians do at how local communities participated in the making of Canada's First World War home front, and how local peoples and populations responded to this horrific period. A war of some 54 months that marks a very distinct before and afterwards as a global event. Some say that the 20th century is the bloodiest century in human history actually began in August 1914. I wouldn't dispute that. I've also been joined in recent years by others who've completed significant studies of local responses in Canada, including Ian Miller, whose work focuses on Toronto in the war, James Pitsula on Regina, and James Blanchard on Winnipeg. Of course, I'm speaking tonight as part of a national and transnational process of commemoration of the First World War as a centenary of passages. August 1914, the war's outbreak was just over 100 years ago. By the end of October 1914, a century ago, almost to the day, the first contingent of the Canadian Expeditionary Force, 25,000 men, had been assembled and then very hastily and badly outfitted at Sam Hughes' massive training depot at Valcartier, Quebec. So right where we're at now in the calendar 100 years ago, they were heading down the St. Lawrence on their way to further training in England. Every day for the next four years will mark anniversaries of mobilization, troop dispatchments, killing overseas, veterans returning, and grieving the loss of those who did not return by families and friends, by communities, by all of us who are here tonight to mourn the true costs of war. This spring, for instance, uh, the end of April 1915 will mark the anniversary of the Second Battle of Ypres. The CEF joined the fray, as many of you know. Canadian soldiers were fated to be among the first ever to face chlorine gas on a muddy, bloody salient near Ypres in northern France. This modern war had no end of ghastly inventions. Whether Ypres or the Somme or Vimy or the last and most deadly battles of the Hundred Days or the Armistice itself, we're here tonight collectively to mark the stages of wartime anniversaries that will end on the 11th of November 2018. Of course, the war did not end with the end of the shelling and shooting. You know, history does matter. History matters. And we're all an active part of it, to borrow from our lecture and our organizing committee's nomenclature. Canada's part in the war can be approached, indeed should be approached, on a variety of levels. World War I was an imperial war. It was a war of empires, most of which would fall as a result of their becoming part of it. 
is a huge part of Canada's military history, as it was in the histories of war and society generally. The First World War became a prolonged sequence of new strategies and tactics, in trenches and in no man's land. It was fought largely by conventional forces in Europe, in uniform, men and nursing sisters, in divisions and in battalions, fought as a war of attrition and supported from the rear lines all the way back to Canada. Not so in Mesopotamia, the Middle East today, where the war was fought between the Turkish army and the British and the irregular forces of the Arab revolt. And we're living in consequence of redrawn maps in Asia, Africa, and in Europe today. But not so in Canada, from which all the battle precincts, whether in the Middle East or in France and Belgium, were overseas. As such, in local newspapers, news was of an envisaged story of distant conflagrations, a war imagined, as Samuel, Hans, as Samuel Hines put it some years ago, with reference to the literature produced. But on the level of party politics, the First World War reshaped the political landscape of Canada, especially with the broken promise of conscription in 1917, a year of true desperation. The Liberal Party collapsed. A new union government took that year's election, the khaki election, as many came to call it. Political centralization, a coalition of conservative and anglophone liberals that supported conscription, was a wartime measure. The liberals would be back, and memories of what the conservatives did during the war would continue to hurt that party in Quebec until Diefenbaker. The First World War reshaped party politics of the Dominion of Canada. With respect to different levels of analyses, Canada's Great War was also an economic war with serious social consequences. Canada's national policy, which traces back to the country's first prime minister, moved out of the deep recession of 1913. That prelude to the war's outbreak threw many soon-to-be enemy aliens, young men for the most part, who the fate of European borders had caught up with out of work. Some nearly 8,600, mostly Ukrainians, ended up, as I speak, I'll speak about this later, in internment camps run by the Department of Militia and Defense. But for most wage earners on the home front, labor's surplus became labor shortage. Wartime demand and bumper harvests, yes, soon the Canadian Pacific Railway was shipping record bushels of wheat from the west. From the east, from the factories of southern Ontario and Quebec, orders remained overbooked for ammunition and uniforms until the very end of the guns of August in November 1918. Canada's war, because in part of the national policy of the late 19th century onwards, was a regional war. It also divided French and English Canadians when it came to compulsory military service. Canada's First World War also led to a unified national mythology. The CES costly but defining battle at Vimy Ridge in 1917 and the commemoration of the noble sacrifice, uh, not the senseless slaughter the war also was, since the armistice, as Jonathan Vance argues, have been part of Canada's great, great war nation-building thesis. A dignified idea embracing a set of ideals revisited on the 11th hour of the 11th month to the present day. The war has left a settling down, if not a settling of accounts, of the long struggle between history and heritage. By that I mean contrast between what actually happened and what it has come to mean in terms of proud or shameful moments. 
First Nations volunteers outstripped proportionally volunteers from across the country as a whole. Their leaders hoped that military service could be linked to the settling of land claims that are based on the Royal Proclamation of 1763. We're all still waiting. Apart from Aboriginal and Métis peoples, visible ethnic minorities for the most part were barred from ordinary voluntary enlistment. It was a white man's war. Maybe the accounts overdue to so many, to the enemy alien who lost his freedom, to the young woman of a century ago who lost her future mate, can never really be settled. I was lucky. My grandfather survived. He enlisted in 1917 with the American Expeditionary Force. I can remember when I was a boy, I asked him to drop his sock. I wanted to see the bullet wound. The stories I had grown up with included how that bullet wound, with the infection that followed, almost cost my grandfather, Angus McGregor, his leg. Instead, he became a police officer in Guelph, Ontario. I'll come back to this in a broad sense to talk about my, you know, how important family connections are to local communities, memories that have been woven together as a kind of a national social memory. And this is something Vance eloquently described, especially before the era of mass communication beyond newspapers and telegrams that circulated in the First World War. The realities and myths of this horrible Great War are very much a part of us today. They are, for instance, the fundamental part of the conflicts as I speak that Canada has rejoined in recent weeks to engage in aerial bombardment at seemingly loose and diffuse targets. The irregular forces of the self-proclaimed Islamic State, ISIS State, are located variously in vast areas that fell under the domain of the faltering Ottoman Empire in 1914. World War I, the global war of empires, was, with respect to how it was actually perceived, felt and acted upon in everyday life on the home front as a profoundly local experience. That's what my book tries to emphasize. What do I mean by local experience? How does an historian select locales across a vast and varied country like Canada to study? Do you compare them? Can you compare them? Let me deal with the last question first, my selection choices. I selected three cities to focus on. Lethbridge in southern Ontario, population 10,000 at the outbreak. Guelph in southern Ontario, under 13,000. And Trois-Rivières, under 12,000 on the St. Lawrence, midway between Quebec City and Montreal. It makes for an awkwardness of methods and key questions to compare them. I don't think comparative histories of cities should be attempted, at least in wartime. Instead, I followed the noted anthropologist Clifford Geertz, whose work was based on studies of village life in Bali in the 1950s and early 1960s. He did not, as he put it, study villages, but what took place within them? The danger in talk of, about, say, the very obvious resistance to compulsory military service in Francophone Trois-Rivières leads us to begin to essentialize it as a city into some kind of integrated entity. Which Trois-Rivières? Which Guelph? Which Lethbridge? Which one do you talk about? Ordinarily, we talk about larger entities as, as if they are things. You know, it's convenient. Our university is moving in this direction or that direction. You know, our employer, our 
government, our school systems, our healthcare systems, in fact, are much easier to critique as singular entities than any urban space was or will ever be. The point is not to reduce any locale to a distinct character or nature, but to do what Geertz did, to study what takes place in selected living spaces. A sharp focus brings the cultural and social realities of everyday life, especially the unexpected, into view. That said, the uh, simple comparisons of apples and oranges of these three cities is simply too crude and reductionist. I did set out to choose three urban locales of mid-size in this point of Canada's urban history that established some obvious contrasts. Trois-Rivières was over 95% French-speaking and Catholic. Guelph was a kind of a middling city in terms of its mixed economy, its location, and its multiple ethnic identities. Lethbridge was, like all cities on the prairies in 1914, a mushroom of sudden growth, noting the long-standing presence of indigenous peoples. Lethbridge was a re-settlement exercise designed to plug into the national policy of rail, wheat, and immigrants. It was a place recently occupied by the Aboriginal peoples of Treaty 7, at or near the coolies of the Belly, renamed Old Man in 1915, River, not far from Fort Whoopup. By 1914, there was also a significant enemy alien population, mixed in with the same group of Anglo-Canadian Protestants that tended to dominate the economy and political decision-making in Guelph and in Lethbridge. It's just that some, like a noted public citizen and pharmacist, J.D. Higginbottom, had moved from one city, east to west, to the other, seeking his livelihood. He did so in that gray era of prairie boosterism that dawned in the frantic years of prairie resettlement that began with the completion of the CPR in 1885 and before the clouds of economic setback in 1913 and before the war itself a year later. Points of contrast are important, even if one is not doing a truly comparative study. But so are good uh, for historians to examine closely newspapers and rich archival repositories, the the Lethbridge Daily Herald and the Guelph Mercury still circulate today under those same mastheads. Le Bain Public is long gone, but in its day, and certainly in the war years, it was an important part of what was called La Bonne Presse the Catholic press of Quebec and Etoile-Rivière. The biases of all these local newspapers were all very important for me to study as histories of perspective, worldview, and the nitty-gritty of everyday politics. From the thinly-veiled voice of the Catholic diocese of Trois-Rivières, which actually owned Le Bain Public, Le Bain Public was published Tuesdays and Thursdays, to the close ties the Lethbridge Daily Herald had with the Liberal Party and wartime Union Party in 1917 were clear. William A. Buchanan, the local member of Parliament, was the principal order owner of that great source, the Herald. And yes, for historians like me, keenly interesting in, look at, in, in looking at how wartime news was framed by local war views, world views and politics, this was important. How did the editorial windows of a profoundly biased press, and all papers had a bias from Catholicism to political partisanship across Canada, how did they bring news to local readers who consumed the news of the day on a wartime home front? 
as well. Uh, the Archive du Seminaire de Trois-Rivières, or the Wellington County Archives, built within a remodeled 19th century house of industry for the poor west of Guelph. Uh, the Sir Alexander Galt Museum and Archi Archives in the heart of Lethbridge. In each case, these repositories contain many great stories for me to tell. That's why I chose these particular cities to study. Good size, good newspapers, good local sources, and useful points of obvious contrast for my readers. I wanted the book to be a tour across the Canadian home front landscape with three-pronged stopovers from the St. Lawrence Lowlands, the heartland of southern Ontario, to the phenomenal growth of immigrant-boosted resettlement on the southern prairies. What do I mean, however, by local experience? Why is this perspective so relevant in looking at such a profoundly significant international conflict and period of destruction? Local experiences, of course, take place through the eyes and ears and all the senses of local populations. Ordinary people live in ordinary places. To understand them, as any good social historian knows, means you have to move in with and move about as closely as possible, at least with a few of them. History from below, or from the bottom up, takes place in urban spaces with lesser known figures, like the pharmacist Higginbottom, and the many hundreds of others I came to know across the home front as actors in history because of the residency in Lethbridge, Guelph, or Trois-Rivières. And so there are two themes I'd like to pursue in terms of focusing on the Great War as a local experience. The first is that of the unexpected. What a local focus provides sometimes is a contradictory messiness layered onto a broader national level history. Sometimes I say to my students, social history is messy because you don't know what you're going to find. Some of it might surprise you. Some of it simply won't fit into a larger national narrative. My second theme will briefly touch on the local connections every town and city, rural or urban uh, as well, made to the war. The links were formed through mobilization and troop send-offs, through patriotic fundraising initiatives on a local level, and through commemoration of the great loss of the Great War which has helped bring us here this evening. First, what bizarre or at least unexpected incidents and developments took place within these cities? What did they suggest about the wider reality of our world? How was it that these strangely local occurrences quickly came to mean so much to the eight million Canadians a century ago who really lived and understood their lives on a local level in the age of telegraph, but not that of radio, television, or the internet. I'd like to talk about three under the following subtitles. The visit of a Belgian priest. This occurred in Trois-Rivières. The great escape. This occurred in Lethbridge. And the Guelph raid. This of course occurred in Guelph. First, the visit of a Belgian priest, l'abbé Monsieur Larsimon. His journey to Trois-Rivières came in the wake of the war's horrific outbreak. By horrific, I mean the German march through Belgium. This was the first part of the Kaiser's disastrous Schlieffen plan to take Paris and then turn around and defeat the Russians, comparatively weaker than the French. 
This was the Europeans' march to war story, told and retold around the world as it took place. Some mistook it for mere propaganda, but it was more than that. It was a very real, needless, horrific destruction of the few soldiers and many civilians that stood in the way of the German army's strategic intentions. It ended any hope for a speedy war, and of course brought the British Empire and Canada into a tangled system of alliances it long belonged to, and into the war. The German army's stymied advance through Belgium caused enormous destruction. It made prisoners of civilians, many of whom were executed. It created a flood of refugees, some to Great Britain. It led to the establishment of the Belgium Relief Fund and to a variety of efforts to aid little Belgium. During the invasion, the German army killed approximately 5,500 civilians. The rapid retreat of the small Belgian army to Antwerp was standard front page fare well before the Bryce hearings held in England as an official inquiry concerning the atrocities reported by many witnesses and survivors. After the fall of Antwerp, feisty little Belgium gained heroic status among war watchers. That was the international as well as the national picture here in Canada. But I did not expect did not expect to discover a Belgian priest fundraising on behalf of his community in war-torn country just five months after this took place. But this was not unusual in Quebec, as the noted historian Cornelius Janin observes, Belgian newcomers to Canada were often welcomed in Quebec because of the commonalities in language, religion, and adaptability. The reception and impact of l'abbé Simon's visit to Trois-Rivières helps us confront some, confront some stereotypes about French Canada and the Great War. Some might assume, in looking merely at recruiting figures or funds collected in support of soldiers' families under the aegis of the Canadian Patriotic Fund, that French-Canadian support was only tepid during the war. It was an English war. It was a Protestant war. It had nothing to do with the Canada that had long been colonized by French Catholics before their heart-rendering defeat on the Plains of Abraham. Not at all true. Whether one goes out in the streets among the exuberant crowds of the 5th of August 1914 in Quebec City, Montreal, or Trois-Rivières itself, or begins knocking on doors to raise money for the CPF, or even witness an early send-off of troops Support for a voluntary war against Germany, Prussian militarism, as it was commonly referred to, that had violated Belgian neutrality, was strong in Trois-Rivières, as elsewhere in Quebec and across Canada. Let's go back through a detailed report which appeared in Les Bains to what local people, many Catholics of the diocese of Trois-Rivières, heard and no doubt felt one night when l'abbé Larcimont of Montigny in Belgium spoke to a large audience seated in the ambience of a truly stirring Catholic cathedral architecture. Larcimont was introduced and spoke following a regular mass at the impressive uh, cathedral of Trois-Rivières. And we can, see the next, uh, we can see the next two slides. We have an exterior and an interior of the cathedral, taken recently, but of course the architecture has um, not changed and that's what it would have looked like in the inside in 1914. Given the importance of his visit, 
He spoke to a mixed audience of laypersons and clerics. He told a long story, of the details of which recounted the horrors he experienced. What he saw, what he did, what he felt when German soldiers invaded with extreme prejudice the Diocese of Tournai in northeast Belgium. He took his audience back to a day some five months earlier, which began for him like many others. At dawn, he had approached the door of his presbytery to prepare the mass. Suddenly, German soldiers accosted him. He ended up in a group of about 100 other villagers, forced to endure an exhausting march that lasted into the night. The soldiers insulted Father Larcimon as he neared collapse from thirst and hunger. Arriving in Maligny, to the east, the displaced villages were herded like animals into the city park. Six men were shot without warning. Belgium was now in chaos, the priest explained. Schools had been burned, religious buildings ruined, the poor were starving. To make matters worse, as he put it, socialists controlled the streets and gave nothing to the Roman Catholic Church. He then appealed for help to relieve the most impoverished, to rebuild schools, libraries, to restore damaged Catholic buildings. His plea was placed before a hideous background, the evil Prussian regime, the brutal horde, the bestial intruder who had burned children's books, executed civilians in Belgian cities, or used them as hostages as the fighting escalated. So these are my rough translations from what was reported in the newspaper uh, about the content of his talk. And it was no doubt a, an intense encounter in Trois-Rivières that night in an immediate face-to-face -face way with the victim of the German invasion of Belgium who was fighting back with his words, his story, his appeal for Belgian relief. And his reception described as heartfelt prompted a genuine outpouring of charity among those who'd assembled marking a direct link on a local level between the Catholic Diocese of Trois-Rivières and the Catholic Diocese of Tournai in Belgium. I did not know I was going to find that story in January 1915, some four months before any troops from the first contingent of the CEF faced the guns and gas at Ypres. But I'm glad I did. And it helped me understand the connections between locale, local experience, and a distant war overseas. The next foray into the unexpected, and the local I'm going to call for the purposes of this talk, the Great Escape. Indeed, when we get into the details of it, the barbed wire enclosure and a barrack huts for prisoners, just over a hundred in number, the digging of a tunnel, the escape of six men in the middle of the night through it, and flight to freedom may seem reminiscent of the famous Hollywood movie with Richard Attenborough and Steve McQueen. But of course it's not. The prisoners and the escapes and the, and the prisoners and the escapees were enemy aliens on Canada's first World War home front. This particular group had been held in Lethbridge, a hastily assembled detention camp as all of them were. And there's much to the story as we move from the national level to the local level. And we can show the next slide for that. At the end of September 1914, the Lethbridge internment camp had been set up in the poultry buildings located at the city's exhibition grounds. This barbed wire enclosure was one of two dozen receiving stations 
and detention camps set up across Canada. District commanding officers across Canada's six military divisions and three districts were responsible for administering them, a task that began in the first few weeks of the war when US-bound reservists in the German and Austrian militia were captured en route. Enemy aliens arrested in Alberta, military district 13, led by Colonel E.A. Cruikshank, were sent to the Lethbridge camp. At first, the 25th Field Battery, under Captain J.S. Stewart's command, provided guards, until Ottawa assigned permanent guards. A district registrar for enemy aliens, P.W. Pennefather, was appointed on the 4th of November 1914 and worked from a Calgary office, which handled most of the Lethbridge cases. Two days later, Major General Sir William Otter took charge of internment operations, inheriting a system already expanding. The enemy aliens? Of the approximately 80,000 of them, many were young men who had come to Canada recently in search of work. At the outbreak of the war, their country of origin determined their enemy alien status. That was detailed in Canada's War Measures Act, passed in Parliament on the 18th of August, 1914. Of the nearly 8,600 enemy aliens who were detained at some point during the war, often for months and even years, most were European, Ukrainian ethnics uh, from uh, Austrian territories, about two-thirds. Most were young. Almost all were men. Yes, they were caught in the middle of an imperial war. Few were truly a threat to national security because when the war broke out, most men who had served in the enemy armed forces or were reservists for the, the Austrians or for the Germans had a crucial but useful period of time to escape into the United States. That safety valve gradually closed and then closed fairly tight with the War Measures Act. So those young men left behind in most cases were either unemployed since the recession of 1913 or had been fired for patriotic reasons by employers who simply caved in to their disgruntled employees' demands in many cases. It was a rotten time in Canada's history of multicultural identities. I pored over the records of the Lethbridge internment camp. They seemed to me tragic, boring in the sense that they reflect the obviousness of military bureaucracy on Canada's wartime home front. I was looking at the records of the Department of Militia and Defense, trying to complete a job of enemy alien containment that was grim, somewhat inevitable, and teaches us that a global war produces victims of ethnic identity on all its home fronts. Between November 1914 and October 1916, a total of eight separate escapes involving 17 internees took place from the Lethbridge camp. Poorly disciplined guards, access to public roadways, and proximity to Montana were the underlying reasons. After all, though you might get killed running for it, freedom was just across the border, not 10 miles away. One of the biggest problems was maintaining sobriety among the guards. There were allegations of prisoner abuse, and I've read reports the Department of Militia and Defense completed to, in a sense, police itself. Not inspiring stuff. But perhaps that's the point. It was a banal job. It was part of the war. The search for real freedom and Canadian citizenship that these young men carried, um, carried out came with a heavy price. 
And much has been written about this. Uh, Bill Weiser, in particular, has done a splendid job of detailing how some prisoners in work gangs in Banff, Alberta, actually were detailed to build the roads, the golf courses, the infrastructure of one of Canada's great national parks. But then I came across an event no one had ever written about. Of the 17 men who made it out of the camp, some were recaptured, but most were never heard of again in Lethbridge. Six made it through an 111-foot tunnel they dug from their bunkhouse, underneath the ground, and through a garden that still bloomed each year on the potential freedom side of the barbed wire. It was, given the detailed accounts the military produced in its, in its investigations afterwards, truly a great escape. And it was something that, at least for a while, truly captivated local residents, many of whom avidly consumed the Lethbridge Daily Herald's sensationalizing of the breakout. This historic, notorious escape occurred at the end of April 1916. The tunnel was examined afterwards, measuring exactly 111 feet, or 34 meters, a bunkhouse under the wire and through the garden just outside the compound. It was obviously dug at great risk. Not necessarily being shot by a guard should one be discovered, but of simply being buried alive as a digger during the many nights that must have gone into completing this bizarre road to freedom on the Canadian prairie. What military police authorities all admit to be the smoothest escape pulled off in Canada since the outbreak of the war, the Herald reported, had taken place. It was, the paper continued, successfully consummated in the pitch-dark hours between midnight and daybreak on the Wednesday morning of this week. The Herald's front-page story spoke of six full-blooded Germans who made a clean getaway and have not been seen since, though the country has been combed from one end to the other for a trace of the fugitives. The paper then raised the question of camp security, that the whole camp did not get away as a wonder to anyone who's examined the elaborate plans of the plotters. But the fact that only six escaped suggests that the detention camp population, just over a hundred at this point, was divided between the half dozen willing to assume the risk of being shot or buried alive, uh, digging the awful hole. Most were not, though they possibly were united in keeping the preparations, which were indeed elaborate, a secret. Well, the search for the six uh, full-blooded Germans continued. Um, their escape was reconstructed through testimonies gathered by a formal court of inquiry ordered by Lieutenant Colonel Crookshank as the commanding officer of District 13. Facing a board of three officers headed by Lieutenant Colonel A.W. Jones of the 118th Lethbridge Highlander, Captain J.A. Burney, camp commander, along with each of his guards on duty that night, were grilled at length. What did the trail the long-gone men left behind look like? The guard who first found the tunnel's exit during the frantic search for the missing men the following morning said, quote, There was a large stone and I pushed it aside and I took two boards off and then took a match and crept a little way into the hole and found overalls, boots and tins of fat. When I got most of them out, I crept into the hole again and found six loaves of bread, carrots, and two small boxes with ropes attached. Earlier, Camp Commander Bernie reported that various tools were discovered, 
A butcher's knife with teeth cut into it apparently used as a saw. A wooden maul with a tin covering on its side. A small iron chisel. An old coal shovel with a short handle. A piece of lead pipe with one end flattened out. Two boxes with rope attached. Empty tobacco tin. And piece of fat ham, apparently used for lighting purposes. A crude measuring rod. Did you see the fan? The guard who first discovered the tunnel was asked. Much of the question was centered on a crudely fabricated ventilating fan used to supply air to the tunnel. This device, which was also retrieved from the tunnel, had been seen in various states of preparation by many around the camp in the weeks leading up to the escape. Bernie reported that the camp's medical officer had noted the prisoners working on the fan. He stopped them and asked them what they were doing, and they told him they were just passing the time away. He never reported it to me. Others reported that, yes, they saw them making something like that about two or three weeks ago, or I saw them making it, I thought it was an ordinary trinket. What the prisoners realized was that the best way to hide the most cumbersome necessity was to make no attempt to hide it at all. No sooner had the examining board uncovered the evidence of a poorly guarded camp than the Herald got busy providing readers with a series of rumors. Is there a nest of German spies working in Lethbridge? Where were the, Les were the Lethbridge Six, quote, aided by German agents in the city? This suspicion was strongly hinted at by a local police officer. Either they were loaded into a waiting automobile and whisked across the line, or they were hidden by friends in some out-of-the-way place, close to the city, the Herald claimed. Speculations also led to a theory that signals might have been passed by some unexpected method so that outside accomplices would know the exact time when the attempt to escape was to be made. End of quote. In an effort to place these conjectures on firmer ground, the paper and act added, in fact, it is rumored on good authority that one attempt by an outside party to signal the inmates of the camp had been frustrated. Nearly two weeks ago, a brief notice in the Herald reported that the country had been combed for clues, but none have been come to light, and it's pretty generally conceded the Germans got across the line. And as far as I can see, they were never seen again in Lethbridge or we only have their names left in the evidence. The ventilating device is now part of our permanent material history of enemy alien internment during the war. It now rests at the Glenbow Museum and Archives in Calgary. A brief shot of it appears in a national film board documentary I screen every year for my undergraduate students. An excellent account of enemy aliens in Canada during the First World War called Freedom Had a Price. It certainly did. My final unusual incident, perhaps the most bizarre and intense of all, is the Guelph Raid. The evening of the 7th of June, 1918, began like any other at Guelph St. Stanislaus Division, located near Bedford Farm, just outside the municipal boundary north of Guelph. So we can turn to that, to that slide of the Novitiate. By coincidence, the Reverend William Power, Superior General of the Jesuit Order of Canada, Will Power, as he was nicknamed, was then visiting the college. Nineteen scholastic novices, eight junior scholastics, along with eleven lay brothers and six faculty, were then in residence. Even more coincidental, 
given what was about to transpire, was the fact that one novice, 20-year-old Marcus Doherty, was the only son of Canada's Minister of Justice, Charles Doherty. The senior Doherty, as Canada's Minister of Justice, had drafted the Military Service Act, Canada's conscription law, which included an exemption provision that became, as events ran their course, a matter of dispute. As the younger Doherty later recalled, what happened was unexpected. The teachers and students at St. Stanislaus had just celebrated the Feast of the Sacred Heart. Doherty and Brother Leo Fitzgerald had served both of them as sacristans. Quote, we were putting away extra carpets, candles, flowers, decorations used for the benediction of the Blessed Sacrament, which had just taken place just across the hall to the right of the entrance was the modest front parlor. It was not surprising that Brother Fitzgerald and I were the first to hear the bell. Another novice, George Newman, also recalled an unanticipated turn of events. The first inkling we novices had that there was anything in store to interrupt our routine of our lives came shortly when we retired at the night of the Feast of the Sacred Heart. We were wakened and told to dress and assemble in the refectory. Father Henry Bork, rector of St. Stanislaus, was as startled as the young novices were. The element of surprise simply added insult to injury. Indeed, the entire fiasco occurred on the basis of action preceding careful judgment. Captain A.C. McCauley, sent from Military District No. 1 headquarters in London, Ontario, had rung the bell. He was greeted and entered, leading a squad of five men. He only briefly and gruffly, by all accounts, explained his reasons for the invasion or intrusion. He, had, he, he interrogated several of the men and was about to demand that several accompany him back to the barracks under military police arrest. But the wind was suddenly taken out of his sails. Doherty remembered the turning point that evening as follows. On his way back to the refectory, just as he made his way down the stairs, Father Nicholas Quirk, who had just been questioned himself, stopped him for a moment. Marcus, Father Quirk asked, does your father know about this? They asked Bork about making a telephone call to the Minister of Justice in Ottawa. Father Bork cautioned that they would need approval from the officer in Tweeds, Captain Macaulay, who seemed anxious to carry out his arrests. Macaulay still felt himself, quote, cock of the walk, as Doherty remembered. He gave them ten minutes to get through, otherwise, Doherty, you come to the barracks. Doherty managed to reach his father and quickly told him what was taking place. The Justice Minister in Ottawa, primary author of Canada's Military Service Act, then got Macaulay on the phone and ordered him to leave the novitiate at once, which he did without taking anyone back with him. We'll never know what Doherty actually said to Macaulay, but I sometimes imagined that brief exchange. It was not pleasant, we can safely assume. Neither was the law, nor the conditions that led to it, nor its broader social history in Canada. After receiving a formal complaint in writing from Father Bork, Canada's Minister of Militia and Defence and Doherty's cabinet colleague, Sidney Chilton Newburn, replied with an apology four days later. Words could not express to you, as Major General Newburn put it, my deep regret 
at the actions taken by the Deputy Provost Marshal Captain Macaulay on the evening of the 7th instant. Macaulay was subsequently posted to Winnipeg. Some Protestant clergy were not happy. Not happy at all. The most sustained protest came from the Reverend W.D. Spence, President of the Guelph Ministerial Association and pastor, pastor of Guelph's Congregationalist Church. And the Reverend Kennedy H. Palmer, pastor of St. Paul's Presbyterian Church. Palmer, in particular, felt that special unwarranted privileges had been extended to the Catholic Church, its religious orders, and to residents of the St. Stanislaus Novitiate. A congregation in nearby Preston, Ontario, heard the following statement from Palmer that subsequently made its way into the staunchly Protestant organ of the day, the Orange Sentinel. Now, brethren, I come to what to me is the crowning act of shame on the part of some people in our district. Outside the city of Guelph, as some of you are aware, is the novitiate of the Roman Catholic Church, governed by the Jesuits. For many months past, in fact, ever since the passing of the Military Service Act, persistent rumors were abroad that many young men whose people were well enough off to pay the price could be found there in hiding from military service. For a long time, some few of us in Guelph who believe in the principles, equal rights for all, special privileges for none, have been urging the military authorities to find out if there were any foundation for the rumors. Palmer's reference to special privileges seemed deliberately provocative. Men and women, he continued, it's surprising how the influence of the Roman Catholic Church dominates. Then with a clear reference to the Honorable Charles Doherty, Palmer stated that the military hands were tied by one of the leaders in Ottawa who had much to do with the framing of the law and who at first had the Dominion police under his orders. Then he stated erroneously that uh, Doherty's son and others were being illegally protected from conscription. And brethren, Palmer concluded, here the matter rests until you or I or someone who fears none but the almighty God shall keep on working until public opinion shall demand the same treatment, the same justice for all young men, whether they be Roman Catholic or Protestant, rich or poor, or as he emphasized, the son of a cabinet minister. The Reverend Paul Palmer then called for an indignation meeting to be held. Those inspired to take up the cause of God, conscription, and the good fight would be able to meet, vent, and plan for more things to come. The portents of a sectarian battle seemed on the horizon. However, the verbal storms, winds of anger and resentment, sometimes delivered from Protestant pulpits, soon died down. Simply put, opinion on the matter held by the Guelph Ministerial Association, which most Protestant clergy belonged to, did not seem uniform. At the St. James Anglican Church, Archdeacon Mackintosh maintained, I have not seen anything that can justify the charges made. The church is no place for stirring up religious strife. This is not the mission of the pulpit. Edwin Pearson the father of a future Prime Minister of Canada, also took a moderate stance toward the Guelph raid at this point, preferring to wait for the facts to come. 
no evidence could be found confirming that any indignation meeting took place, which had been scheduled for the North Folk Street Methodist Church, Edwin Pierce's church. And that's the reason I think it, 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 it was cancelled. As his son's biographer John English states, Lester Pearson remembered his father as a modest minister, not an embattled evangelist, one who, quote, led his flock rather than harried it. And this seems a fair assessment. Well, the Guelph Herald reported that some very caustic remarks were uttered and serious charges made by Guelph preachers. Edwin Pearson's voice was not among them. He and another pastor, the Reverend I.M. Moyer of Paisley Memorial Church, was reported to have dealt only briefly with the matter in their pulpits. Thus ended any further talk, or any talk of, of any further consequences, or much attention by historians since, of the Guelph Raid, an incident which, at its height from mid-June to mid-July 1918, contributed to about one-third of all the mail Prime Minister Robert Gordon received across the country as the Unionist Prime Minister of Canada in the midst of Canada's conscription crisis. Now, as a matter of conclusion, uh, my book does not deal primarily with unexpected incidents, sectarian tensions, prison breaks, or other events that simply demonstrate that local experience is shaped by an immediacy to wartime conditions that is often narrowly situational rather than broadly societal. And so at this point, I think I can, I can, I can leave my text somewhat to say that um, what the book focuses on in, in, in the chapters on uh, uh, patriotic fundraising, uh, troop mobilization and send-offs and dispatchments and the return of soldiers are the themes that I, I now really feel link all local communities to this great war at this time. Uh, and the first was uh, recruitment and send-offs themselves. Uh, not that the soldiers who joined even the first contingent, especially the first contingent, were local boys from local families. Many, in fact, were English uh, newcomers to Canada, over two-thirds, and they were looking for perhaps a cheap way home uh, out of the recession of the period that had preceded the war, and no one really thought the war was going to last that long, or few did. Uh, but as time went on, and we moved out from the beyond the Valcarce phase of the first 25,000 men being raised, and the totals would be well over 600,000 by the end of the war. Local communities became a much more important part of the process of establishing a local connection between the soldiers who volunteered and the friends and families who came to say goodbye at the railway stations. Same too can be said for patriotic fundraising, all kinds of patriotic activities. Sure, they demonstrated the social hierarchy of the uh, communities, that is, they were <clears throat> tended to be um, organized and uh, declared uh, in function by, by white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males, and the women in town did the real work of organizing the uh, visiting of homes, and the insurance that people would have enough coal, poorer families with breadwinners overseas, coal for the, to keep warm and food on the table. Although this policing of the fund could, um, could sometimes uh, reflect a hierarchy of uh, appropriate behavior in which a woman whose breadwinner was overseas, who was found to be immoral, 
and who would decide not might be cut off from the fund altogether. Now, the, the point I would make with the Canadian Patriotic Fund is that they were very much bottom-up local organizations. They had a national overall framework, but as a charity, they do represent that close contact, as much as troop send-offs do. Troop send-offs would be preceded by dances, farewell, uh, sermonizing, um, etc. Then the third thing, the final theme that I would say dominates our sense of connection between locale and imperial war or international war is commemoration itself. If you look at Jacques Vance has done a great job of doing this at the, the commemoration um, memorial cenotaphs that appear in every town and city in Canada. They're very much local expressions. They all have a certain similarity in attempting to ennoble the war, you know, as a noble sacrifice, but they're all very different in terms of what actually appears, the words that appear on them. And, and of course, the names are all different. But they become a place on the 11th hour, the 11th day, where people have always returned to after the armistice. And uh, so I would like to conclude with just a brief a couple of slides that, uh, that uh, look at uh, the, uh, the broad aspects. Uh, this was the first trainload of troops from Lethbridge in the fall of uh, 1914. And it's an interesting first shot for us to keep in mind because they don't, a few have uniforms, but not all of them. One is holding a Lethbridge pennant up. It's a very informal shot. It looks like, you know, a hockey team off for the big game in the next town. A lot of enthusiasm, a lot of hope. This is the beginning of the war. But again, for some, these men here would ordinarily have served in the militia locally. Uh, the, the enthusiasm for recruitment was so high that most men at first had to be turned away. Unless you had military service, I mean, in, in this first contingent of the CEF, uh, very likely you'd be rejected. And uh, so in that sense, in a place like Lethbridge, this would have been a very close connection to the community. We'd be very proud of it. The reports of these send-offs are extensive and reflect the enthusiastic connection between locale and the war in this phase. Let's see the next slide. But here... After the excitement of the Valcarce period is over, we move into a militia regiment phase, as I call it, all within the voluntary period, where soldiers, instead of being whisked off to a huge training facility, Valcarce, Quebec, are being trained across their military districts and divisions across the country, are being trained locally. So this is a shot of the uh, 118th Battalion, uh, and uh, you can see how the men are outfitted for this particular shot, and virtually thousands of these pictures appear in archives, in family uh, collections, and so on, in which uh, one of their you know, proud uh, ancestors now uh, resides somewhere in those photographs. Can you have another look? But, uh, now here's, here's a railway platform send-off. It happens to be from Lethbridge, but it's the kind of moment that uh, could be recaptured anywhere else in the country and often has been. Again, thousands of such pictures exist. But we can, you know, take a close look at it, deconstruct it, if you will, a little bit. Um, you can see, if you look carefully at the very middle of the picture, that that is the troop column ready 
to embark on the train. And they're, they're disciplined, they're not quite standing at attention officially, but you can see how they're outfitted, how they are military. And that represents the break-off from the group of friends and family and onlookers who come to say goodbye. They're the civilians you can see just in behind them as the train begins to make its way into the city. And as a liminal moment, of course you can think about the tears and the goodbyes and the proud smiles that some, some would have had. But um, because it was so common and because it was so repeated across the country, it's a, it's a fundamental connection between local and national. It's a liminal moment, a transitional moment when they, when they go. And then finally, uh, a final shot. Um, at the end of the war, commemoration begins very locally. This was actually Peace Day, which was a special day before the Armistice Day became more regularized, and of course after the Second World War, Remembrance Day. Now here in Lethbridge, uh, an ethnic, a male ethnic association of, uh, of you know, a benevolent society that were called the Sons of England and the Kentish Men's Society actually built a float at home. These would be civilians celebrating the end of the war, trying really to move towards from celebration to commemoration because so many had died. Of course, it was a much more proportionally costly war for Canadians, proportionally costly than the Second World War. And finally, well, you can, whenever you're at another town or city next, you'll come by one and you could just stop and realize that that's the one for this town and the one for the next town will have some similarities, but many, many local distinctions. And this happens to be the one in Lethbridge. Its story, like so many others, was that of an attempt immediately after the war to do something which kind of fizzled out. And then the Great Depression came. This happened generally across the country. So it wasn't usually until the end of the 1920s or somewhere in the beginning of the 1930s that the first cenotaphs actually went up rather than right after the war. And since then, they've often been, this one was removed from the uh, exhibition grounds and moved now to in front of City Hall. So sometimes, not often, sometimes that can occur. But the individual local names on these cenotaphs, uh, well, I can remember again in my own family story, and my father took me to the cenotaph where he had grown up in southwestern Ontario, not to show me the, the name of the soldier in the First World War, but to show me the name of his best friend, Ted Code. And I saw that on, on the cenotaph. And that, that's, that's what I mean by local connection. And uh, that concludes my talk. been listening to a recording of Robert Rutherdale's talk, Hometown Horizons, Local Responses to Canada's Great War. It was part of the Fall 2014 History Matters Lecture Series. You can find recordings of other talks at activehistory.ca. 